0: So, as I said before, it's good to see everybody, especially after not seeing everyone for a couple weeks. We were supposed to have finished this Lent series at the actual end of Lent two weeks ago, but I was trapped in this van of sickness and death. Um, So I was coming back from a conference, and one by one, everybody in the van started just vomiting uncontrollably. Uh, And so we ended up pulling over in Georgia, and then Obviously, I missed our service two weeks ago. And then uh, two days after that, I became one of the sick and uh, came down with everything that they had. And so uh, the beginning of my Easter week was dark. I'll say that. Um, But I trust that your Easter was good as you celebrated the Lord's resurrection. And so tonight, we're going to make up for lost time. We're going to finish our our Lent series. Uh, and then next week, Corey's is going to walk through the first chapter of Galatians with us really over the next two weeks. And then we're starting a series on faith and work. So I live in this neighborhood that's kind of on the edge of the, the rougher part of town. And so there's this interesting sort of back and forth that happens there. Like certain nights, it feels like suburbia. And other nights, like you go to sleep to the sound of police helicopters and things like that. And if you sort of stumble into one of the worst parts of town, one of the things that you notice is that there are movie posters plastered across all of the abandoned buildings. And I don't know why that's a marketing scheme. I don't know how effective it is, but I've just noticed this in my neighborhood and really in cities across the country that as you sort of get into the places with more abandoned buildings, there's movie posters plastered everywhere. And if a if a movie poster is doing its job, it is intended to build up in you some sort of anticipation and expectation for this event that is coming in the premiere of this film. And in many ways, that's sort of what the Old Testament functionally does as it bears witness to the incarnation and the work of Jesus. Uh, God is speaking through the writings of Moses and the law and the prophets and the psalms, the things that we just sang about, with the intention of creating in his people this anticipation and expectation of the work that is to come and is fulfilled in Christ. And so as we walked through this Lent series, we've spent all of our time in the Old Testament just looking at the ways that it points to Jesus. And so we started in the beginning with Adam. We saw Adam as a prophet and a priest and a king. And we see how Jesus, the second Adam, is a better prophet, priest, and king. We moved to the book of Exodus, and we looked at the central event there, which is the Passover. And we saw how Jesus is the truer and better Passover lamb. And we walked into Ecclesiastes and saw Solomon's frustration with everything that's gone wrong with the world. And we see how Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection begins to make right what had so frustrated Solomon. A few weeks ago, Shane, who's our high school pastor, walked us through this passage in Genesis. In Hebrew, it's called the Akedah it's the binding of Isaac and we saw how God spares Abraham's son but the father does not spare his own son as Christ is offered up as a sacrifice and now we come to Isaiah 53 so if you have your bibles you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and that's the text we'll be in this evening this is an interesting passage uh, there's a an old testament scholar named Michael Brown who was raised in a Jewish home and around college he started to have these encounters and interactions with Christians, and one of his Christian friends asked him if he would be willing to read Isaiah fifty-three and come back and tell him who he thought it was talking about. And so, as uh, as a, a Jewish man, he begins to read Isaiah fifty-three, and it sends him into this real crisis in his Judaism. And so, he goes to his local rabbi and he asks him who is Isaiah fifty-three about. And the rabbi's response is, "Sure, does sound a lot like Jesus." <laughs> Isn't that curious? And it didn't help him at all. Uh, but ultimately, reading this text and seeing what, what is, is so apparent uh, that it perfectly overlaps with the person and work of Jesus was one of the things that led him to move from Judaism to Christianity, which is the fulfillment of Judaism. And so the, rec- the New Testament recognizes this also. Isaiah 53 is quoted seven times across the New Testament. Uh, in recognition that what is being said here finds its culmination in the person and the work of Jesus. And that's the text that we'll be in this evening. So let me read it for us, beginning to end, and then we'll walk through it together. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people? He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, and although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, our passage starts with two questions in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this phrase, the arm of the Lord, actually has a really interesting shelf life in the Old Testament because it begins to appear around the book of Exodus. It's used several times throughout that book. The arm of the Lord uh, is stretched out. The The Lord stretches out his arm. He reaches out his arm and accomplishes both judgment and salvation. And what's so interesting here is that if you begin to look at sort of the Egyptian writings, especially coming out of Pharaoh's court during this period in human history, They believed that Pharaohs were gods, and when Pharaoh would do something, he would say things like, behold, I stretch out my arm, and I destroy this city. Behold, I stretch out my arm, and I enslave this people. Behold, I stretch out my arm, and I build this monument. But what's interesting is throughout the book of Exodus, no matter how many times Pharaoh stretches out his arm, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. Whereas the Lord stretches out his arm and accomplishes salvation. There's this great passage in Exodus where it says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Isaiah goes on in chapter 59 to say, The Lord's arm is not so short that he cannot save nor is his his ear deaf so that he cannot hear. So recognize this. At the very beginning of this passage, as it begins to tell us who it is that Jesus is, he's saying something specific, that he is the arm of the Lord. This is how God is going to accomplish salvation for his people. But this is also how God is going to judge people. But the text goes on almost in this paradoxical way. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There's a, uh, there's a category of Steven Spielberg movies that I think are so classic that it doesn't matter if they're kind of grown-up movies, kids are still allowed to watch them. So movies like Jurassic Park or Jaws or Indiana Jones. Uh, like there was no real age restriction in my house other than like you need to be old enough that you're not going to have nightmares after you watch this. And, and of those movies, my absolute favorite was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's great. And if you haven't seen it, you shouldn't take communion tonight because you have things you need to repent of. <laughs> but Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if you haven't seen it, um, for your for your benefit and your spiritual good, let me just break it down very quickly. So Indiana Jones is this archaeologist, and he gets wrapped up in this sort of a worldwide attempt to find the Holy Grail. And I think in almost all of them, he's battling the Nazis. Um, I, I think he's battling the Nazis in this one as well. So the Holy Grail is the theoretical cup that Jesus drank from during the Last Supper. And so the Nazis think that it's gonna help them live forever so they can finish their, their war and rule the world. And so the, scene, the, the movie ends in this really iconic scene, I think, where um, sort of the main villain and in Indiana are in this room and they're both given the option to pick from this table of cups, which one is in fact the Holy Grail, and all of them are like encrusted with jewels, and they look like just money in cup form, and so the, the, the villain in the movie is given the option to choose, and he picks the finest cup that he can find, and he drinks from it, and it turns out that he chose wrongly. I'll just leave it at that, and, and so then it falls to Indiana to try and figure out which of these cups is in fact the cup of Christ, And he walks past all of these gold-plated, jewel-encrusted chalices. And he comes to this simple, humble cup that looks like it's been hewn out of wood. And it looks like the cup of a carpenter. This cup that has no form or majesty that it would attract your eyes. And yet that is the paradox at the heart of this text. And it's the paradox at the heart of the Christian faith that Jesus is at the very same time the arm of the Lord, God's appointed means of salvation, and yet in his humanity he bears no former majesty that would catch your eye. He's the very incarnation of the eternal son of God, and yet he is called the son of a carpenter. He's the savior of mankind, and yet he's despised and rejected by men. He's the author of all beauty, and yet he's not recognized as such. He sustains and fills the very heights of the cosmos and the depths of being, And yet he is walking along the dusty roads of the ancient Near East. He has no form or majesty that you should look at him, no beauty that you should desire him. And yet he is of infinite majesty and infinite beauty and infinite value and infinite worth. And so if you're in this room and you're a Christian, and you have, you have recognized these things to be true of Jesus, that he is the arm of the Lord, that he is the fullness of God. I want you to recognize as well that you have no grounds for boasting here because you did not come to that recognition on your own. The arm of the Lord was revealed to you in the words of Isaiah. Jesus asks Peter this question, who do people say that I am? And Peter gives him this laundry list of, of different things that people are saying. And then Jesus asks him a more pointed question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, man has not revealed this to you, but God. You have come to this recognition not on your own, but in God's grace, he has caused you to see Jesus for who he truly is. But, but there's... Encouragement in this passage as well for you and I in our Christian lives because we live in a context right now globally where to live a life that really matters at least from, from a societal perspective we have to live the sort of life that is recognized we have to live this sort of radical life that wins prizes and gets featured on BuzzFeed and is, is recognized by the different powers that be and if we die in obscurity then our lives don't really mean anything At least that's what we're conditioned to think. But don't miss this. The most important life that has ever been lived by external appearances had no former majesty that you would look at it, no beauty that it would draw your eyes. And what this ultimately points us to is that at the end of all things, at the restoration of creation, I really do believe the sort of people that will be most celebrated are not going to be the Nobel Prize winners. They're going to be mechanics, they're going to be janitors. They're going to be single moms, people who lived ordinary, faithful lives in response to the most important life that has ever been lived. They won't be lives that by external appearances would have caused you to esteem them. But these lives that were esteemed not in the passing age will be of infinite worth in the kingdom of God. He is esteemed not. It goes on to say he is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. But surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Um, one, one of my favorite paintings uh, is this work by a Russian artist named Ivan Kramskoy. I'm probably saying his name wrong. It was painted in 1872, and theoretically it will be on the screen behind me. Uh, but it's called Christ in the Desert, Christ in the Wilderness. Uh, and it really just depicts, it depicts Jesus during the 40 days when he is in the desert being tempted by Satan and fasting. But it's so different from what you see on stained glass windows. It's, it's so different from what you see in like your Precious Moments Bible. Uh, it's so different from what you see in Veggie Tales because uh, as you look at it, his, his eyes are sunken in Uh, His shoulders are heaved over. His hands are folded in exhaustion. He looks weary. He looks tired. And yet this is the beating heart of Isaiah 53 that he is called the man of sorrows. But pay attention to what is said about those sorrows in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's important for you to recognize that he is not called the man of sorrows because he carries his own grief. He is called the man of sorrows because he carries your grief. He carries your sorrow. He carries your despair. And he is so called that. And we can experience something of this when when we have friends who are um, suffering or struggling and they come to us with their problems and they ask us to, uh, to walk with them through it. And maybe you've experienced that. A friend goes through loss and and you begin to sort of take on the weight of their pain. Yet Christ's identification with your sorrow and suffering is of an infinitely different character than the way that you might identify with somebody else because Christ so shares in our sorrow and our suffering and our pain that it comes to define him as the man of sorrows. And this makes a profound difference when you pray. When you go before Christ and you say, Lord, I doubt, Lord, I'm in pain, Lord, I am on the edge of despair, Lord, I have lost the will to go on, Christ can respond to you, I know. And that's not simply an intellectual knowledge, like, yeah, I can kind of imagine what it might be like to be in your situation, but instead, Christ can respond experientially, I know because I have carried the very grief that causes you to cry out to me as the man of sorrows, but it's not just our grief that He carries. Verse 5, we're told that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christ does not simply bear your sorrow. He bears your judgment. This is an idea in Christian theology that's called penal substitutionary atonement, essentially that the judgment of God that should rightly fall on us has fallen on Christ in our place. And yet this idea in the last few years seems like it's fallen on hard times. Uh, People have started to buck back against it. They've called it something akin to cosmic child abuse. Because the father is punishing the son against his will, or they've said things like, "What sort of God hates us so much that he has to kill Jesus to stand the side of us?" Others have objected, I think, in in something of a different and maybe more valuable way by saying, "This is a new idea. Christians didn't always believe this." But to that latter objection, I just want want to tell you because you may hear this: this is not a new idea. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopalian theologian. She's not an evangelical. She doesn't have any dog in this fight. And somebody with whom I would probably have some profound disagreements, and yet in her newest book, The Crucifixion, she walks through the church fathers, the first 300 years of Christianity, all the way to Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and shows, I think convincingly, Christians have always believed this. Athanasius says this, taking a body like our own because we were all liable to corruption and death. He surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. Cyril of Alexandria, Christ saves us because he releases us from the power of sin and offers himself as the ransom in our place to cleanse the whole world. Gregory of Nazianzus, Christ was stricken because of our transgressions. This chastisement which was due to fallen sinners descended on him. This is what Christians have believed throughout the ages. But but what of these other things? People read, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord lays on him our iniquities and they say something to the effect of, well, that doesn't sound quite fair. That sounds like Jesus is getting the brunt end of the stick. And yet I want you to understand this. When we talk about salvation and atonement in Christianity, we are not talking about some cosmic case of old yeller. It's not as though humanity is made rabid by sin and mean old Father God chains us up to the woodshed to put us down. The Son, last minute, throws himself over us and takes the bullet. That's not the way that the Bible talks about the atonement. Salvation, incarnation, atonement, redemption, none of these things are Jesus working against the Father. This is the outworking of God's love for his people, the very people who have set their face against him. John 3.16 is is probably really helpful here, and you've probably memorized the version of John 3.16, which actually doesn't do justice to it. So most of us know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Fair. The better translation of that is, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. Christ going to the cross is the ultimate demonstration, not of God's hatred for the world, but his love for the world and his desire not to condemn it, but to save it. It is the ultimate unfurling of the triune God's love for his people. And Jesus does not go unwillingly. Again and again and again, you see this in the gospels. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Pilate stands over him and says, you know I have the power to kill you, and Jesus says, you have no authority over me except what is handed down to you from above. Even in his death, John makes this note that at the end of his time on the cross, he gives up his spirit. It is not taken from him, but he releases it willingly, or in the words of Isaiah, he pours it out. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. At the cross, Christ so takes on our darkness and deceit and evil that it becomes the spikes that bind him to the wood of the beams under the curse of God, which is so rightly ours. But the text goes on, and this is probably the most astounding of all. It says in verse 11 Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He goes on to say he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. As a result of him being pierced for our transgressions, we are counted righteous. Through his carrying our grief and our sorrow, through his bearing of our sin and our shame, through being crushed under the judgment of God, which we so justly deserve, we are made righteous. And this is is the great paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. The righteous one is condemned as a sinner so that sinners might go free. The son is judged as a rebel so that rebels might be called sons. Christ cries out, why have you forsaken me so that you can pray our Father who art in heaven? Decades after his death, the Apostle John, decades after the death and resurrection of Christ, the Apostle John reflects on this. In John 1, he, he asks this rhetorical question. It's not really even a question. He says, see the love with which the Father has loved us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. So at the end of this passage, that so clearly points to the substitution of the Son. We see that He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. By His stripes, we are made whole. Christ loves the church in this way, that He receives the wounds we deserve so that we might be healed, and He dies the death that is rightfully ours so that in His death we might have life. He has become what we are so that we might be called what he is which is sons and daughters of God and that is a profound reality that we mark in Easter but not just in Easter we mark it every time the people of God gather so as we move now into a time of communion that's what we're going to remember the fact that Christ stood in our place, his body broken for us his blood shed for us so that we might walk in newness of life